Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, I want to begin my sermon with an important and complex theological question. Are you ready? Is anybody here a fan of high school basketball? All right. Maybe some of us are fans of high school basketball. Uh, I was being facetious, by the way. That's not a really complex, you know, important theological question. Um, But there was a high school basketball team in Texas that unfortunately hardly anybody was a fan of, uh, the Gainesville Tornadoes. Uh, The Gainesville Tornadoes usually had a fan base, get this, they usually had a fan base of zero at their games. One Gainesville player said that his parents came to one game, but they didn't come to any other games because they didn't have the time. And the other students at the school can't come to the games either, mostly because they can't get out. You see, Gainesville State School in Texas is not an average school, it's not an ordinary school, typical school, it's a juvenile correctional facility. It's a juvenile correctional facility. And one of the few perks of the facility, a few times a year for really good behavior, is the chance to leave the prison to go play basketball games against area schools. And so these students would play these basketball games with no fans. Talk about discouraging and demoralizing and just defeating. But all that changed seven years ago in 2015. There were two players at one of the rival schools, and they were about to play against Gainesville, but they said they didn't think it was right to play against a team with no fans. So what they did was, they asked the students at their school for a favor. They asked the students at their school to cheer for Gainesville instead. So imagine the shock and the surprise and the awe of these Gainesville players as they came onto the court and they saw their own signs of support for the very first time, their their own cheerleaders, and even their own fan section. Initially, half the crowd was assigned to cheer for Gainesville, but then as the game went on, pretty soon the entire crowd was cheering for Gainesville. Every time a Gainesville player would score, the crowd would stand to their feet and start to clap. There was energy, there was excitement in the air, it was electric. One Gainesville player said it was a day he would never forget, that even when he was an old man, he would be thinking about that game. This is how Steve Hartman who's a journalist, summarizes the story. He says, we all need someone to believe in us. We all need someone who knows our mistakes and loves us anyway. And for that, the Gainesville players can't thank those boys enough. Isn't that a great story? Isn't that touching, inspiring? When I came across that story a few days ago as I was working on this sermon, the word that kept coming to mind for me was grace. Uh, We just sang about grace a moment ago. Grace, G-R-A-C-E, Grace, what a humbling, amazing outpouring of grace those Gainesville players experienced, the same kind of grace that we all long to experience in our lives. Um, I love the definition of grace that Anne Lamott, some of you might recognize that name, um, she's a novelist and also a spiritual writer. This is the definition of grace that Lamott offers. She says, grace means you're in a different universe from where you had been stuck. 
Grace means you're in a different universe from where you have been stuck when you would absolutely no way to get there on your own. Those Gainesville players had no way to create their own fan base. So others stepped up and they made that fan base for them. That's grace in a nutshell. Somebody doing for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. And in truth, and the reason I share all this, is that's what God and Jesus Christ does for all of us as human beings, each and every one of us as people. Uh, we started this new sermon series last Sunday morning entitled Grace Encounters. Grace Encounters. It's a three-part series, and in this three-part series, uh, we are looking at, we are analyzing, we are exploring, we are examining three encounters of grace that Jesus had with various individuals in the fourth gospel. What's the fourth gospel? The gospel of John. And so as a reminder, there are four gospels in the beginning part of the New Testament. Uh, the four gospels bear witness to the ministry of Jesus, uh, his life, his teachings, his death and resurrection. What are the four gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And of course, we find grace encounters between Jesus and individuals in all the gospels, but we don't find these particular encounters that we're examining in this series in any gospel except for John. In other words, these grace encounters are exclusive. They are unique to the gospel of John. And we're doing something a little different in the sermon series. Instead of starting at the beginning of the gospel and going forward, which is what we would normally do, we're starting at the end of the gospel and we're going backwards. So last week's encounter, as we kicked off these uh, messages, uh, is found at the tail end of John, John 21, and it involved the disciple Peter and the grace that Jesus offered to Peter following Peter's greatest failure. What was his greatest failure? His denial of Jesus, not once, not twice, but three different times on Holy Thursday, just before Jesus was crucified. And so we talked about the grace that Jesus offered to Peter, uh, the grace that covered and redeemed his failure. Well, this week's encounter, again, we're going backwards, it's found in John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And it's a courtroom encounter involving law and justice. It's a story about a person who does something bad that she feels terrible about, but it's also about another group of people who do something bad, but they don't feel terrible about it. And above all, it's about Jesus, and Jesus is embodiment of grace. Grace that not only covers and redeems our failure, as we saw with Peter last weekend, but grace that liberates us, grace that sets us free, and grace that brings us to a new place. Now, this story, uh, this encounter that we're going to read, it has often been entitled, The Woman Caught in Adultery. The Woman Caught in Adultery. I'll be honest with us, I don't care for that title. And keep in mind that titles are not unique to the Bible. They're not original to the Bible. They were put there by translators later on. I would entitle this encounter, The Woman Who Experienced Liberating Grace. The Woman Who Experienced Liberating Grace. And the religious men who refused to experience such grace. And so with all this said, uh, that takes us, that brings us to John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. The words are up here on the screen. I'll be reading from the NLT. Uh, that's the New Living Translation of the Bible, if you're curious. The story begins this way. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, 
they said to Jesus. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses, in other words, the Bible, says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against them, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with a woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. This is the word of God for the people of God to which we all respond. Thanks be to God. Let's be clear. This was a sham of a trial. This was a joke of a trial put together by a kangaroo court. But Jesus being Jesus, he doesn't miss a beat, does he? Now, as the story opens up, and it's important that we pay attention to all the details, as the story opens up, John tells us that the setting is dawn. It's the beginning of the day. The sun is coming up over the horizon. The birds are chirping. There's energy. There's excitement. There's anticipation. People are moving about, maybe on their way to work. And then in comes Jesus, where? To the temple courts. Now, uh, the temple, and we have an artist's rendition of what the temple would have looked like 2,000 years ago. It was destroyed by the Romans 40 years after Jesus in 70 A.D. Uh, But the temple was the center of religious life in Judaism. It was by far the holiest site in Judaism. In fact, many faithful Jews believed that God's presence dwelt within the temple. And so when Jesus comes into the temple courts, this was called the court of the women, because both men and women could gather here. When he comes into the temple courts with the intention of teaching, he's making a bold statement. He is saying to everybody, I am speaking on behalf of the God of Israel. And then notice something else Jesus does here that John points out. The second half of verse 2. A crowd soon gathered, and what did he do? He sat down and taught them. He didn't stand up and teach. He sat down and taught them. Now, in those days, whenever a rabbi like Jesus sat down, and you may recall that when Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, he also sat down then. Well, when a rabbi sat down, it was a way of signaling that his formal teaching was going to begin. By sitting down, the rabbi could conserve energy, speak for hours and hours on end. That's not such a bad idea, is it? Should I think about sitting down in this sermon? No, I'm not going to do that because I'm not as good of a preacher as Jesus was. But all of this must have infuriated ticked off the religious leaders who had no respect for Jesus. The audacity. Who is this guy? He's speaking on behalf of the God of Israel, and he's doing this in front of the temple. So to publicly discredit him, they bring him this woman who, in their words, was caught in the act of adultery. We don't know this for certain, but based on the evidence we have, all of this seems to have been premeditated on the part of the religious leaders. That phrase, caught in the act of adultery, is kind of an interesting one because in those days, when it came to convicting somebody of a crime, circumstantial evidence wasn't enough. The law of Moses was clear. Two or three people 
had to witness the crime. And so it makes us wonder. How long had these witnesses, these religious leaders, known about the affair? How long had the affair been happening? Was it a one-night stand? Or had the affair been happening for such a long time that the religious leaders knew about it and they were keeping it where? In the back of their pockets, so to speak, waiting to use it at an opportune time to set Jesus up. And if that's the case, how much contempt must they have had, not simply for this woman, but also for Jesus? Had these witnesses been standing by the window the entire night? Because when does the story take place? Early in the morning? Had they been standing by the window the entire night, waiting for this woman to come inside, or for the man to come inside, depending on whose house it was? Did they watch her take her clothes off and undress? Did they see her put her arms around the man, embrace him, kiss him? Did they see him kiss her back? And not only that, but by the time they toss this woman on the ground before Jesus, where is the man? You ever wondered that before? The last I checked, it takes two people to commit adultery, doesn't it? And yet we hear nothing about this guy who's just as guilty. In fact, in some ways, I'm convinced he's more guilty because of the power and the privilege that men had back then that unfortunately women did not have. And so that raises another question. Is he part of the plot? Was he essentially an actor put in place by the religious officials playing the role of an adulterer, seducing this woman into an affair, making her feel valued and beautiful and important? And if not, then why on earth did the religious leaders let this guy get away scot-free? This text raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? This text raises more questions than it answers, but what is clear, what is obvious, is that these religious leaders think that they have Jesus in a dilemma that his back is up against the wall. Here's what they were thinking. Okay, we've got him now because if Jesus shows mercy, we can accuse him of being soft on sin and not upholding the law of Moses and violating the law of Moses in front of the temple of all places. But if Jesus shows judgment, the crowds might not forgive him. They'll turn their backs on him. They'll accuse him of being inconsistent and partial when it comes to giving out mercy. And also, if he judges the woman and condemns her, it'll put him at odds with Rome. Because, remember, at this time, 2,000 years ago, Israel was an occupied territory of the Roman government. And Rome did not allow Jews to carry out executions themselves. That's why when Jesus was later crucified, uh, they had to bring Jesus before whom? Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, had to sign off at the crucifixion, even though the Sanhedrin had already decided that Jesus should die. Pilate had to say, yes, you know, we're going to do this. Rome did not allow Jews to carry out executions themselves. And so we better believe that if Jesus had said, yes, stone the woman, Rome would have said, time out. You can't do that. And if Roman guards weren't already there in the crowd, would the religious leaders have told these Roman guards what Jesus had said later on? Of course they would have. Meanwhile, as Jesus is standing here, supposedly trapped, we have this poor woman in the midst of all this. She is nothing more than a means to an end. The accusations aren't really against her. The accusations are against Jesus, aren't they? Take another listen to what John says in verse 6. 
They were trying to trap him, that is Jesus, into saying something they could use against him. In some sense, Jesus is the one who is on trial here. But even so, it's the woman who stands before this crowd, stripped of her clothes, stripped of her dignity, covering herself in shame and embarrassment, waiting for the first stone to be tossed. It's not that she didn't bear any responsibility. She did. And it's not that she hadn't made a mistake. She had. But here she stands guilty, helpless, in a complicated situation that she was powerless to get out of. Let me ask you, you ever been in a situation like that before? Earlier this year, there was a grandmother named Sarah. This is a true story. And she was at the grocery store, and she was purchasing her items, and she was at the self-checkout line. Well, as the number on the register continued to climb higher and higher and higher, she could feel her heartbeat rise with it. Her heart was getting faster and faster. She simply did not have enough money to purchase all the items that she wanted to purchase, specifically a package of steaks that she had promised to her family earlier that day. She felt humiliated, defeated. Her family was looking forward to that steak dinner. So in the heat of the moment, she made a split-second decision. Instead of leaving the package of steaks on the counter at the grocery store, she put them in her bag anyway, hoping that nobody would notice. Somebody did notice, a store employee, as she was heading out the door. And so the employee did what was the policy of the store. He contacted the authorities, the police. And so the police came, and before the police um, arrived, they took Sarah, and they put Sarah and her daughter. Her daughter was 18 years old and had a disability, and so she was really confused by what was happening. But they put them both in the back of the store in a room that customers ordinarily were not allowed to go into. And so this police officer shows up, and Sarah's daughter was just screaming, and she was crying. She was so confused by what was happening. And Sarah explained to the police officer, she said, I made a bad decision. I, I, I wasn't thinking rationally. You see, I have nine kids and grandkids that I'm looking after. I'm the sole provider of my family since my husband's death 15 years ago. The police officer let her go. And then he called her on the phone an hour later. And when he called her, she was all scared and nervous. She thought, oh no, he's coming to get me. I'm going to be arrested and go to jail. Who's going to look after my family? That's not what happened. It turns out that as soon as the police officer had left Sarah and her daughter, he had gone to a local Christian food pantry, and he told the volunteers at the food pantry about Sarah's family situation. The volunteers immediately got to work. They took bags and bags and bags of groceries, and they began to load up his patrol car. In fact, the patrol car had so many groceries that he could barely fit inside to drive the vehicle. So he drives over to Sarah's house, and he knocks on the door. She answers the door, and she says, I don't deserve this. I, I broke the law. I made a mistake. The police officer wouldn't hear any of it. Instead, he simply asked, where's your kitchen? And he proceeded to put the items in the pantry himself. Like Sarah, this woman in John 8, she is in a tough situation. Did she get herself into it? Yeah, but... There were also complicating factors. But regardless of these factors, she's powerless. She can't get out of it. All she can do in this moment is wait on Jesus to speak. But does Jesus speak? 
Not at first. Check it out there, listen to verse 6. They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Have you ever wondered what Jesus was writing in the dust? That's one of the questions I hope to get answered one day when I'm in the fullness of God's kingdom. Jesus, what were you writing in the dust that day? Now, John doesn't tell us the answer, but there are different theories floating around. For example, it was the custom in Rome for a Roman judge to write out the sentence and then to read it. And so some people assume that Jesus was writing out the sentence as a way to express his authority to judge. Other people think that he was writing down the Ten Commandments. Remember the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus? Other people think that Jesus was just doodling as a way to annoy the religious leaders and tick them off with all their incessant questioning. There's another possibility that I personally find convincing. And that is, Jesus was writing out the sins of all those religious men. Like, for example, standing by the window the whole night, waiting to watch two people commit adultery, holding the woman responsible, and refusing to hold the man responsible. And if that's the case, it's telling that Jesus read out these sins in the sand where they could be erased rather than writing them in stone where they're permanent. We have no idea what Jesus was writing, but when Jesus gets up and speaks, Jesus says words that silences the stone throwers once and for all. Verse 7, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Hey, where's the sinless person? Let's have the sinless person cast the first stone. So what happens next? One by one, these religious officials drop their stones and they go away, beginning with the oldest and keeping with Jewish custom and then ending with the youngest until finally only Jesus and the woman and the crowd is left. Philip Yancey, in his book, uh, What's So Amazing About Grace, I commend that book to you. It's a great resource. Well, in that book, uh, Philip Yancey says that the people in the crowd would have divided the audience into one of two categories. Sinners, like the woman who committed adultery, or the righteous, like the religious leaders. But in one brilliant swoop, Philip Yancey says, Jesus gets rid of these categories, and he transforms and replaces them with sinners who admit and sinners who deny. Sinners who admit and sinners who deny. My question for us is, which category are you in? Which category am I in? We know which category the religious leaders are in. The religious leaders were so quick to condemn this woman that they were blind to their own sin, the brokenness that plagued and affected them. You see, folks, the truth is, the ground is level when it comes to sin. As Paul would later remind us in Romans 3.23, uh, the words are up here on the screen, he says, for everyone has sinned. Paul doesn't say for some of us have sinned, or most of us have sinned, or the majority of us have sinned. He says, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. We all find ourselves in a situation that we are powerless to get out of, beyond our capacity, beyond our control. But even so, there is one who stands over us, isn't there? Reminding us not how guilty we are, or how bad we've been, or how much we have messed up, Rather, he says to us the same grace-filled words that he said to this woman 2,000 years ago 
neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. There is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. There is no infliction of guilt. There is simply grace-based acceptance that precedes anything that we say, anything that we think, or anything that we do. Now, to be clear, this grace-based acceptance is not a toleration of sin. It's not as if Jesus says to this woman, okay, what happened is no big deal, and then he sends her on her way. And it's not as if Jesus says to us, our sin is no big deal. We can keep on engaging in that behavior that's eventually going to tear us apart. Jesus does accept us, amen. And that acceptance is free, it's undeserved, it's unmerited, but it's also demanding. It demands that we step into a new way of life by the grace of God. Jesus ends this passage by saying, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. That's the same thing that Jesus says to you and me. You see, folks, the same grace that liberates us from the effects of our sin is also the grace that invites us and empowers us to walk free of that sin in the future. We are capable of walking into a freedom-filled future ourselves. None of us are. And yet we are by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, the great liberator, our work within all of us as human beings. On January 28, 1945, as World War II was coming to a close, 121 elite army rangers liberated more than 500 prisoners of war, POWs, from a POW camp in the Philippines. Most of these prisoners of war were American. By the time these rescuers came, the men were so malnourished and they were so defeated and filled with deceit, they were in really bad shape mentally and physically. In fact, they had a hard time believing that they were actually free. They thought, well, maybe it's a trick or you know, maybe they're just setting us up. In fact, there was one gentleman who was blind and he couldn't make out his would-be rescuer. And so when the rescuer began to pull at the man's arm and try to tug him into freedom, the guy refused to budge. And finally, the rescuer got frustrated and he said, sir, get up. Don't you want to go into freedom? At that moment, the man was from Alabama. He recognized the familiar southern accent of his rescuer. The smile came across his face, and he said yes. He willfully, he thankfully, he joyfully stepped into freedom. God in Jesus Christ has come to be our rescuer. He beckons us, he invites us, he calls us into a life of freedom. As Jesus offered liberating grace to this woman in John 8, Jesus offers that same liberating grace to you and me. Grace that not only frees us from the effects of our sin, but grace that also frees us from the power of sin. What an incredible, amazing gift that is. Thanks be to our God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please join me in a word of prayer. God, thank you that in Jesus Christ you spoke words of life to that woman. And you also held the crowd responsible, those religious leaders, or you held them accountable, I should say, for the ways in which they had messed up. 
I really don't have words to say right now for your amazing gift of grace that liberates us other than to say thank you. Thank you. Please help all of us as your people to receive that grace into our lives as it changes us from the inside out. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.